You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. The old man had left in a hurry. He'd been absolutely furious as he'd fetched a horse from the stables. A young attendant had seen him and frantically run to help him out, but the man had muttered heavily, Leave me and then glared at the boy. The look in his eyes had demanded it. He had saddled the horse himself and kicked it into a trot, immediately leaving the grounds and taking the southeast road. His mind raged. The insolence, it screamed. The ingrate, it went on. He kicked his horse harder and broke into a gallop, something he had not done for a long time. It calmed him somewhat. The rhythmic pounding of the hooves on the path melting into the swirling thoughts inside his head. He didn't notice the sun setting, or that the misty fog had transitioned into a heavier rain, until he slowed down and felt a great shiver run through him. Suddenly, then, it was as though he could not see much further than ten yards in front. Everything beyond that was just varying shades of grey. It was freezing outside, and now he noticed his thick fur coat getting damper and damper. The road for Huller is up ahead, he told himself. That is vaguely where he had set out for. As he rode on, though, the road to Huller did not appear. The forest got deeper and darker, and the old man, for the first time, worried about how he could survive a night out in a rain-sogged forest. He must find shelter. He tried to think of what towns surrounded the forest, and feeling a desperation creeping into him which he had not felt in many years, he tried to find his bearings. He must veer eastward. On and on he trod, his horse making unhappy whinnies of contempt for the rain that was getting into both of their eyes. On and on. And then he saw the light of a flame, flickering behind some window frame. He kicked his horse and hurried towards it, throwing to the wind any caution for unseen obstacles that might lay between here and there. When he got close enough, he was relieved to find a hut and that there was somebody inside it. He slowly got down off his horse and sought a post to tether it for the night. Having done that, the old man strode for the front door and thumped on it heavily his wet leather gloves adding a squelch to each thud. He heard footsteps approach, and then a voice called from the other side. Who goes there? it asked. The old man stood up straighter and responded with authority. Your Lord Philip, the Duke of Burgundy, Lord of these domains, and I seek refuge with you tonight. Welcome to the History of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. 
Episode 27, Picking Bishops and Familial Fishes. When Philip the Good went to the Imperial Diet in Regensburg in 1454, he gave his son and heir, Charles, the Count of Charolais, a chance to get some practice at ruling in his stead, giving subjects in the Burgundian Low Countries a glimpse into what the future of the dynasty might hold. When Philip returned, he was obsessed with the idea of a crusade, meaning both Charles and Isabella of Portugal remained involved in major political actions. However, as always, events in the Low Countries soon demanded Philip's attention once more, as he would execute plans to expand Burgundian influence over the spiritual as well as the temporal realms in his domains. He would force one of his many illegitimate children, David, onto the bishopric throne in Utrecht, in 1455, and the year after that, another Burgundian puppet into the same role in the ever-troublesome bishopric of Liège. As Philip was busy dealing with these various issues, however, a power struggle broke out within his inner circle that would see the Croy family begin making plans to take down Philip's long-time right-hand man, his chancellor, Nicholas Rollin. To further complicate matters, in 1455, a bombshell would drop when the heir to the French throne, the Dauphin Louis, would flee the issues he had with his own father, the King of France, and sensationally seek and receive exile at the Burgundian court. A generational shift was taking place, and faced with all these new contenders for his father's honour and affection, Charles would feel threatened and the relationship between the Burgundian father and son would sour. By the time he was just 23 years old, the two men would no longer be on speaking terms and Charles would be removed from the political process altogether. The Burgundian dynasty, as strong as it looked from the outside, was looking very frail from within. As we covered in the previous episode, Charles, the Count of Charolais, was a headstrong and serious young man, fully committed to living up to the image he had been born into, a great, if not the greatest, noble prince of Christendom. Like both his parents, he was intelligent, but most contemporary accounts suggest that he took more after his mother, with whom he had spent most of his childhood. As regards his father... Besides their high intellect, the two were otherwise pretty different from one another. Whereas Philip's personality and charisma had allowed him to charm his way to ever more power, only resorting to aggression as a last resort, and in so doing, persistently generating an aura of beloved princely benevolence, his son had an intensity and anger that revealed themselves all too easily and he would never manage to engender the same affection from his subjects. As Philip's trip to Regensburg approached, preparations were made for Charles to take charge of affairs in his absence. However, there remained an official duty which Charles really needed to attend to. He needed to remedy his status as a bachelor. Philip and Isabella had a difference of opinion about who exactly Charles should marry. Isabella, remember, was part Lancastrian, a cadet branch of the English royal family. Around this time, the English king, Henry VI, was having two major problems. 
the onset of insanity and a failure to produce an heir. We should by now all fully realise that while it makes for entertaining stories hundreds of years later, having an insane king with no heir is not exactly the recipe for a strong and stable state. A great council of English nobles convened and Richard, Duke of York, was appointed as Lord Protector of the Realm. When Henry regained his faculties at one point, he was upset by what seemed an usurpation of his power. What kicked off was the 32-year-long Wars of the Roses. If you want to hear about them, listen to a Shakespeare podcast and not a Dutch history one. Within this context, Isabella and Charles were aiming for a marriage alliance with Margaret, the Duke of York's daughter. This would shore up their position within any upheavals that were due to come England's way. Philip, however, was having absolutely none of it. Although the Treaty of Arras was now 20 years old, its stipulations were clear, demanding that Charles marry a French princess. Doing otherwise would be an affront to the French king, and marrying an English princess would clearly be an offensive action. One of Philip's many bastard sons had been trying to convince Charles that he had the right to choose his own marriage and may as well go for the English Margaret. When the Duke found out about this, he summoned his two sons, gave them a good telling off, and told Charles that he'd be marrying a French princess no matter what. According to one chronicler, Jacques Duclerc, after laying down the law to the brothers, Philip then gestured to his bastard son and told Charles that, quote, If I find that he counsels you to oppose my will, I will have him tied up in a sack and thrown into the sea. End quote. The message Philip was sending to Charles could not have been clearer. Whilst I am still alive, I am in charge, and you'd better obey me. The woman chosen to become Charles' second wife was, surprise, surprise, a cousin of his, named Isabel, the daughter of the Duke of Bourbon and his wife, who was Philip's sister, Agnes. Having made his decision, Philip sent off for papal dispensation and set into motion the negotiations for the marriage. Then, without warning at 5am one morning, he set off on his journey to the imperial diet in Regensburg and radically cut the salary of everybody he left behind at court so that he could travel in the style that we depicted a few episodes ago and they could languish on comparatively meager daily stipends. Despite the disagreement about marriage between the two men, for the time that Philip was away in the German Empire, Charles was named, quote, Governor and Lieutenant General in the absence of my most redoubted lord and father of his lands and lordships in the Netherlands, end quote. He went to base himself in The Hague, but soon had to return to Lille to deal with the whole marriage issue. According to the ever-sycophantic Olivier de la Marche, quote, And the Count of Charolais bore himself so well and so virtuously in the task that nothing deteriorated under his hand, and when the good duke returned from his journey, he found his lands as intact as before, end quote. It's a little bit like when your parents went away when you were a kid and you had a you know, few friends around and it turned into a full-blown party and they call you up and they say, are my lands still intact? Despite how great or not great Charles was at playing prince, 
The most pressing issue remained making his marriage to the French princess official to placate any possible tensions between Burgundy and France. But things didn't go smoothly. Firstly, the negotiations between Philip and his brother-in-law, the Duke of Bourbon, stuttered as they were unable to agree on certain terms of the dowry, namely concerning the lordship of a place called Chateau Chinon. Secondly, Isabella of Portugal's continued desire for her son to marry an English princess meant that Philip had to ensure this did not happen. When he returned to Burgundy in the autumn of 1454, the matter was still not settled. The French king even sent an ambassador to Philip to ask what was up and to tell him that he would not return to France until the matter was finally resolved. Philip, however, was one step ahead. He had himself already summoned one of his own men, called Philip Pot, and sent him to Lille, where both his wife and heir currently were. Pot's orders were to oversee the marriage post-haste, which he promptly did. Without the negotiations for the dowry even having been agreed upon, or the two young participants knowing about it until the night before, Charles and Isabel were married on the 30th of October, 1454. Isabel's father was forced to accept the terms of the dowry that he had disputed, and Philip took Chateau Chinon. Everyone, except Philip's wife, Duchess Isabella, could at least pretend to be happy with the arrangement. Regarding the Duchess, however, as old mate Vaughan put it, she, quote, must have been annoyed and frustrated, but King Charles VII of France was surely gratified by this demonstration of Philip's respect for the French connection. End quote. So having dealt with this pressing issue, Philip could once again focus on his dream of a crusade. It's all he wanted to do. The logistics of organizing one were immense and included Philip having to negotiate with the Pope, the Emperor, and the King of France, as well as all the other great and minor lords whose troops and resources he wanted to get involved. Philip once again found himself needing cash to fund his adventures, but this time decided that the way to do this was to levy a tax on the lands of the nobility in Burgundy. This request went down terribly with a bunch of those nobles who believed themselves to be the absolute sovereigns of their own little areas, and in meetings between them, angry words were spoken, including some giving open praise to the knight who had murdered John the Fearless on the bridge at Montereau. One man in particular, Jean de Granson, lord of a place called Bem in France, but Pesmes to everyone else, began agitating for outright rebellion against Philip. But Philip's chancellor, Nicholas Rollin, was, as always, fairly on top of things, quickly having Granson arrested for high treason, tried and, at Philip's order, quietly and secretly executed by being suffocated in between two mattresses. Because, you know... Why not? After this, the nobility was forced into submission and agreed to pay the subsidy so long as it was only a one-time deal and that Philip actually used the money to go on a crusade. So, great problem solved, crisis averted. The lasting issue, however, was that many of the aristocracy, particularly the Croy family, who were very close to Philip, were left bitter that Granson, a noble just like them, had been killed for his role in the whole affair. They lay the blame for Granson's death solely on Rolin, a commoner, 
who had been raised into their ranks but didn't really truly belong in their elite caste and whose inflexibility and ruthlessness had led to the draconian death sentence. Nicholas Rowling had made very powerful enemies who would now be biding their time, waiting for the moment to take him down. On the 5th of March, my birthday, in 1455, not my birth year, the French King Charles VII gave Philip permission to raise troops in France for a crusade. Just 19 days later, however, two prominent people died, which immediately changed Philip's calculations and priorities. The first was the Pope, Nicholas V, meaning the central legitimizing force for an eastward-bound Christian army was thrown into uncertainty while a new Pope had to be elected. The second death was that of a bloke called Rudolf von Diepholz, the Bishop of Utrecht. Remember that although there were temporal rulers in control of most regions, all those counts and dukes and margraves and whatever, the biggest ecclesiastical domains were also dominant political entities controlled by powerful prince bishops. In the Low Countries, there were two powerful bishoprics, Utrecht and Liège, whose spiritual domains overlapped into Philip's territories, but which he had not yet managed to get fully under his control. The territory controlled by the Prince Bishop of Utrecht included the Nederstedt and the Overstedt, but the See of Utrecht, that is, those lands inhabited by people whose overall spiritual guidance was the Bishop of Utrecht's responsibility, extended into Holland, Friesland, and Gelders. Philip, as we have already seen, didn't exactly like people being in positions of power unless they had been placed there by himself personally. He also had a hankering for these territories which had evaded his grasp so far and couldn't give up this opportunity to finally incorporate these areas into his realm of control. Speaking of hankering, that brings us to today's Bet You Didn't Know That Was Dutch. The English word hanker, which we all use every day, is thought to have come from the Middle Dutch word hunkeren, meaning to have a lingering longing for. The origins of that word are believed to have come from the word hungen, which means to hang. So to hanker for something is to have a feeling which just keeps hanging around. Like Philip and his unquenchable thirst for having as much power in the low countries as possible. So there you go, hankering. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. So back to Utrecht. Way back in the 1420s, when Philip was fighting his cousin Jacqueline for control of Hanno, Holland and Zeeland, a popular uprising in Utrecht had seen Rudolf von Diepholz raised to the Episcopal throne, and in 1427, with this popular support, he had declared his loyalty to Jacqueline. Following Philip's victory over Jacqueline, however, by 1430 he had come to terms with Rudolf and recognized him as the Prince Bishop of Utrecht, while Rudolf recognized Philip as the legitimate master of Holland. In 1451, Rudolf had made his own drastic move for expanded power, trying to take over the bishopric of Munster, which neighbored the seas of Utrecht and Cologne. He must have been embarrassed when the town of Munster violently rejected him, making him Rudolf the Red-Faced Bishop, and when he died in 1455, it left a vacuum for power that piqued the interests of all the nearby rulers. From this point, Philip's crusading aspirations, although very, very much at the forefront of his mind, 
were forced to be overshadowed by his love of garnering as much land, power, and influence for himself as he could, and he jumped into the bishop finding Battle Royale. The Bishop of Cologne and the Duke of Helders put forward Stephen of Bavaria as a candidate. The Duke of Cleves wanted his 15-year-old nephew, and Philip the Good wanted one of his bastard sons, David, to be elected. The Canons of Utrecht, being the clerical body that actually held the rights to electing a new Prince Bishop, settled on somebody completely different, Gijsbrecht van Brederode. He was a fairly popular ducal official and member of a very old, established, and noble local family. Although the Brederoders were well affixed to the layered system of clientele loyalty that Philip had fostered, Gijsbrecht's brother was even a golden fleecer, they were too powerful locally and could even lay claim to the rule of Holland if they stretched their imaginations enough. Philip, for this reason, rebuked this appointment. Disregarding his feelings, the canons of Utrecht recognized Gijsbrecht in his new role in September 1455 anyway. Philip became very upset. Fortunately for Philip, however, as we have seen, he was amongst the most powerful people in Christendom. Years earlier, he had successfully gotten the same bastard son, David, into the position as Bishop of Terouanne, and now the new Pope, Calixtus III, kindly did Philip's bidding and appointed David to the position of Prince Bishop of Utrecht, regardless of what the canons of Utrecht wanted. The Duke of Cleves, who you will not be surprised to learn was one of Philip's nephews, abandoned his candidate and stepped in line with Philip, but there was still contention from Gijsbrecht van Brederode and those who supported him. Philip decided to shift his whole court to The Hague and figure out what to do about troublesome Utrecht. At around the same time, it became evident that Utrecht was not the only bishopric in the Low Countries that Philip had his eyes on. It was also finally time to bring Liège into the fold. Liège had proven troublesome to anyone trying to wield power over it, the estates there had strong traditions of autonomy from their bishop, but their rebellion had also been violently suppressed by Philip's father almost five decades previously. Following that turmoil, after John of Bavaria had abandoned his position of bishop-elect of Liège to go and lay claim to Holland, a guy called John of Heinsberg became the prince bishop and generally managed to keep Burgundian encroachment at bay whilst keeping his subjects distracted from their tendency towards full-blown revolt. In 1430, however, Heinsberg was forced into a corner of having to declare war on Philip, and this had resulted in Burgundian troops being sent to Liège, imposing themselves, and harsh peace terms being enforced. Now, in 1455, Philip finally pulled some levers, somehow pressured Heinsberg into resigning, and got the Pope to elevate Philip's 18-year-old nephew, Louis of Bourbon, to the Episcopal seat. This turned out to be a disastrous appointment. Louis was not rulership material, but rather self-indulgent, pusillanimous, and bereft of the skills needed to hold sway over such an autonomously-minded people as the Liegeois. The people of Liege outright rejected Louis, and within a year had once more gone into rebellion against a prince-bishop who they had not chosen for themselves. Let's turn to one of our favourites, Richard Vaughan, for an insight into Louis's early reign. Quote, 
Relations between Louis and the citizens of Liège rapidly deteriorated. When he was forced into exile, he retaliated by excommunicating his flock, but the Episcopal messenger who brought the document proclaiming the excommunication was forced to eat it, and the houses of Louis de Bourbon's friends and officials were burnt down. End quote. Don't shoot the messenger, indeed. Rather make him eat the message. Philip, stationed in The Hague, was compelled to raise banners and have troops from his other domains sent to go and bring Liège to heel once more. Although open war was averted, the rebelling Liégeois people pulled another trick out of their sleeve and went to ask the French king for protection against this Burgundian incursion. As we know, Charles VII and Philip the Good were like two old lions circling each other on the geopolitical stage. Charles happily received the entreaties of the people of Liège, and the bishopric became another vulnerable theatre where he and Philip could take out their passive aggression against one another. The status of Liège would remain in flux between these power bases, Philip, Louis of Bourbon, Charles VII, and the people of Liège for another decade. But when we come back to it, well, things are going to get rather ugly there. Speaking of ugly... We usually have a pretty ugly attitude towards the next section of the show. Here, I would normally make a scathing comment, introducing an upcoming ad, forewarning of whatever bleak foray into commercial spruiking we are relying on this week in order to keep our lights and microphone on. If we are honest, we would much prefer to promote things that we have a deep passion and love for, and as much as I love lizards... That does not necessarily include Gecko Life Insurance. Well, folks, our dreams have come true. Here's an ad for our favorite thing, featuring one of our favorite people. See you on the other side. Hey there, History of the Netherlands listeners. This is meant for you, so don't skip ahead. The lockdown is done, and those damn boat guys are back on the water for all of your boating needs. We would love to cruise you in and around Amsterdam, telling you all about the magical jigsaw puzzle of a city that we love. And that might never appear in this podcast if they keep doing episodes from the perspective of pickled fish. The History of the Netherlands is great, but like everything else in life, it's better by boat. Well, actually, I'm pretty sure skydiving isn't better by boat. Worked for Indy in Temple of Doom. Yeah, did Indy ever take a boat mountain climbing? <laughs> Fine, sure. Because you guys always avoid hyperbole, right? I personally think that boats are pretty cool, and there are a few better ways to get in touch with Dutch culture than floating for a time while those damn boat guys blow your mind. Oh, I just love your assonance. The history of the Netherlands boys are all long-time Those Damn Boat Guys pirate generals, so join us for a private tour and you could be shown around town by your favorite H-list podcast celebrities. Did I just say podcast celebrities? Is that a thing? Yeah, it's kind of like being a YouTuber, but just, you know, less successful and with a face for radio. How nice would it be if you could see for yourself instead of just imagining Joe's wild gesticulations as he gargles words, or Julian's smirk when backseat hosting, but best of all, you can get conclusive proof that Dave does in fact actually exist. If you know the city inside and out and want to change things up, 
We're more than happy to cruise you down the Amstel or make a long loop through lakes and lochs and lovely little villages that are lacking in alacrity but looming in their lush and lustrous likability. You like that, Joe? A literally the worst thing I've ever heard. To contact and or learn more about those damn boat guys, visit tdbg.nl. That's tdbg.nl, as in those damn boat guys. Make sure the subject line of your email says, I believe in Dave, so we know how you found us. Thanks, Jesse, and welcome back. I, too, believe in Dave. In July 1456... Philip focused on the situation in Utrecht. Gijsbrecht van Brederode and the people of Utrecht had remained implacable against the Duke and against the papal approval he had received for his bastard son David to be made Prince Bishop. Philip decided enough was enough and set about raising troops in order to solve the stalemate. In late July, he based himself in Eiselstein, just southwest of Utrecht and on the border with Holland. There, Philip celebrated his 60th birthday. He was having a long innings indeed. As his army was gathering and becoming set on an assault against Utrecht, Gijsbrecht van Brederode made a calculated and, fair to say, life-preserving decision to submit before any real conflict took place. Philip received him in Eiselstein on August 2nd, where they negotiated terms. Gijsbrecht's offer was to resign the bishopric of Utrecht in exchange for a yearly income from the lands of the Sticht, compensation of 50,000 gold lions, which was a new currency recently minted in Scotland, by the way, and high-ranking positions both on the Ducal Council of Holland and in the Church of St. Donatians in Bruges. Philip, showing once again that he was usually willing to show mercy in the interests of stability, accepted these terms and could now officially sit his son David on the throne in Utrecht. Prince Bishop Dave. If Dave was here, or if I'd seen him in the last two and a half months, I would get him to say something. To do this, Philip and his assembled forces made a triumphant entry into the town for the ceremony at the great cathedral in Utrecht, the Dom. The civic militia of Holland, ducal knights and heralds, all led the procession that made its way in front of yet another subdued population who from now on could consider themselves within the Burgundian realm. The last two to pass by were Charles, heir apparent, and Philip the Good, the Grand Duke of the West. As you will recall, however, from episode 23, Overachieving Ophrysalers, the Utrecht spiritual domains of the Stict were not a continuously connected territory. The Nader Stict, in which the town of Utrecht actually sits, was bordered to the north by a chunk of Gelders running west towards the Zouderzee. On the other side of that lay the Ophrystict. Although the people of Utrecht had submitted to Philip, or David, many people in the Ophrystict had different ideas. They had not yet been faced with the prospect of a Burgundian army and refused to accept David as their new ruler. So after a week's stay in Utrecht, Philip sent his army to go and lay siege to one of the Ophrystict's most important towns, Daphinter. The siege of Daphinter was not the most glorious Burgundian exploit ever undertaken. Chastelaine describes the shame of honourable knights standing knee-deep in mud, while Monstrelet tells us that when the Burgundian army arrived outside Daphinter's walls, quote, those of the town sallied out against him, and a smart skirmish ensued. 
in which many were killed on both sides. In the end, they, Daphnters, were repulsed and driven back into the town, and on the fourth day a strong bulwark they had erected in front of the gate was so much battered with cannon that those within, foreseeing it must be taken, set it on fire, and burned it down during the night. The siege, however, lasted until the end of September, when the townsmen sent office to the duke to obey the bishop, as the other towns within his diocese had done. End quote. It is arguable that in his aggression in the Stift, Philip was truly stepping into a certain theatre of Northwestern European politics that he had been skirting around until then. Holland and Zeeland had been under his control for a long time. However, Utrecht, Friesland, and Helders, which interacted more directly with the northern German trade cities and bishoprics of Munster and Cologne, had avoided his direct attention and influence. The Duke of Helders, Arnold, had come to power at a young age with the support of Philip, sealing the arrangement by marrying one of Philip's nieces, Catherine of Cleves. They had five children, of whom four survived, one becoming the Queen of Scotland and the eldest son of which, Adolf, becoming the heir apparent, as well as, from this point, somebody whose adventures we will certainly come back to. The Duke of Helders and the Duke of Burgundy had been on reasonable terms with one another. When the matter arose of who was to become the Bishop of Utrecht, however, tensions developed as each looked at expanding their own power bases in this area. As Philip's army laid siege to Deventer then, he was fairly open to an attack, should the Duke of Helders so decide upon one. There is a story that as he was negotiating with the townsfolk of Deventer, Philip's niece, Catherine of Cleves, arrived unexpectedly at his camp, accompanied by young Adolf. They were engaged in what would become over a decade of struggle against their husband and father, Duke Arnold, for power in Helders. She told Philip that she had learned of her husband's devious plan to form an alliance with the Frisians and to attack him while he was vulnerable. Quote, this caused the Duke to lose no time in closing with the offers of those in Deventer, so that the treaty was immediately concluded, and hostages were given for its performance. The Duke raised the siege the 27th day of September, and returned to Utrecht, and thence to The Hague, where he disbanded his army, leaving his son David in peaceable possession of the bishopric of Utrecht. End quote. This story may also not be very accurate, but more designed to give pretext for further Burgundian influence in the affairs of Helders in the future. Foreshadowing. Rather than the threat of a Frisian Helderian attack rushing Philip to conclude his affairs in the Sticht, there was another out-of-the-blue bombshell that landed in the wider political framework and which would require his very serious, albeit surprised, attention. In many ways... It is such a blessing to not be the History of France podcast. There was at this time a lot of complex stuff going on between Philip's implacable frenemy cousin, the French king, Charles VII, and his own son, Louis the Dauphin. We don't need to go into any of it, except to say that in August 1456, as Philip was laying siege to Deventer, the Dauphin found cause to flee from his father, and sought refuge on Burgundian soil. Two high lords went to meet the Dauphin and to escort him to Lofen, 
One was the Marshal of Burgundy, and the other was a guy who held the title Prince of Orange, also named Louis. Although he often showed himself fairly flippant in his loyalty between the French king, German emperor, and Burgundian duke, this Louis, Prince of Orange, had fought for Burgundy during the Holland Succession Wars in the 1420s. And yep, we are just going to drop that title Prince of Orange in there for the first time, give it no more context or discussion, and move on swiftly. When the Dauphin Louis arrived at Lofer, he sent word to Philip, who, holding the tedious siege of Deventer, is said to have been completely taken aback, the negotiations with the town basically being a matter of crossing T's and dotting I's, he hastened them along and promptly disbanded his army and set off for Brussels. His thoughts must have ranged from concern at how absolutely furious the French king must be to wonder at the good fortune of having his frenemy cousin's greatest asset landing in his lap. This was, after all, his future liege lord, and one over whom he might be able to wield significant influence. When Louis the Dauphin arrived in Brussels, Philip had still not returned. Eleanor of Poitiers, a Burgundian writer who was a child at the time, later described it. Quote, Louis, being Dauphin, came to Brussels accompanied by about ten cavaliers and by the Marshal of Burgundy. At this time, Duke Philip was at Utrecht in war and there was no one to receive the visitor but Madame the Duchess Isabella and Madame de Charolais, her daughter-in-law, pregnant. Monsieur the Dauphin arrived at Brussels. Where were the ladies? at eight o'clock in the evening, about St. Martin's Day. When the ladies heard that he was in the city, they hastened down to the courtyard to await him. As soon as he saw them, he dismounted and saluted Madame the Duchess, Madame de Charolais, and Madame de Ravestein. All kneeled, and then he kissed the other ladies of the court. End quote. Louis was given all the honour and prestige owing his royal self, and when Philip arrived at his side in Brabant in January 1457, he promptly paid due homage, apparently kneeling for so long before the Dauphin that he was told, quote, Upon my faith, good uncle, if you don't get up, I shall go away and leave you, end quote. Louis was granted an annual income by Philip and a castle at Genup near Brussels, from where he could hold his own court. Once that was settled, Philip could concentrate on mitigating the fury of the French monarch. He had already sent an ambassador to Charles VII, pleading that he had no part in the making of this stunning turn in events. According to Chastelaine, the envoy, quote, stayed at the French court, and I do not know what they discussed, but during that time, news came that the king had garrisoned Compiègne, Lyons, and places where his lands touched the duke's territories. When the envoy returned to the Duke, he published a manifesto ordering all who could bear arms to be in readiness. End quote. Philip essentially told Charles that he would not be giving his son back. This was a great gamble given that Charles VII would continue to threaten and demand his compliance. Apparently, though, Charles, a very savvy political player, was bemused by the prospect of Philip harboring his future powerful lord. One French writer, Descouchy, quotes him as having said that, quote, Louis is fickle and changeable, and I do not doubt that he will return here before long. I am not at all pleased with those who influence him, end quote. And more famously, he is said to have also remarked that, quote, my cousin of Burgundy nourishes a fox 
who will eat his chickens, end quote. In the early days of his exile, the veneer of high honour and homage heaped on Louis by the Burgundian nobility would have been easy to maintain. Louis, however, did not quite fit the same image as his contemporary and cousin, Philip's son, Charles. He had been born when his father's grasp on the French throne had been entirely tenuous, and their family had sought refuge amongst the dirt of loyal French commoners. He had not had a sense of self-princeliness projected onto him on a day-to-day level for his entire life, such as Charles had. Yet for years into his adulthood, Louis had held his father's wishes in contempt and built a projection of himself as the inevitable monarch. Louis would spend years at the Burgundian court, as Ruth Putnam puts it, posing, quote, as the ruined poor relation, entirely free from pride at his high birth and delighted to repay hospitality by his general complacence. End quote. In reality, however, he was basically waiting for his father to die and for his inheritance to come in. Richard Vaughan writes, quote, While at Genappe, Louis never concealed his longing to inherit the crown of France. Indeed, his constant and hopeful inquiries of the astrologers especially when his father was ill, concerning the exact hour of his probable death, caused some comment. Chasseline says that Louis was not only happy to hear of his father's death, he had prayed for it. End quote. Philip, for his part, was more than happy to help foster those dreams, and keeping the future French king in his good books became a major focus. Some big things began happening in the family about six months after the Dauphin's arrival. Some were cause for celebration, while others became indicative of fractures that had developed between the Duke and his son, Charles. These were widened by the presence of the Dauphin within the family's dynamic of drama. Charles had not been present when the Dauphin had made his flight and stunningly arrived in Brussels. He was on his way to Nuremberg on a mission for his father. When he returned, there was this other contender for his father's affections and a second young prince who provided a different presence, with his own different interests, wielding influence amongst the power brokers of the Low Countries. It makes sense if Charles was annoyed. He was the golden prince. He had been given great responsibility and not failed in his conduct. And yet, on the ladder of power that he returned to, he probably felt that he had been pushed back a rung or two. Other issues that arose would only serve to heighten his annoyance. We have earlier mentioned how the Croy family, this very, very established clan of old nobility, were very bitter towards Nicholas Rolin, and how they, in the layered clientele system of Burgundian administration, had garnered a lot of power for themselves. Antoine de Croy, an OG golden fleecer alongside his brother Jean, held the post of Philip's main chamberlain for most of his reign and also acted as the governor of Luxembourg, among other places. In the overall scheme of all things Burgundian, his influence was only a couple of notches lower than that of Rolin. Charles really disliked the Croys, who were also competitors for his father's affections and arguably his favourite other family. In 1456, the Croys had used their power and influence at the court to seize land from an inheritance which Charles believed was rightfully his. Rolin, perhaps sensing that Philip's time was coming to an end due to his advancing age, 
had begun positioning himself and his family closer to Philip's heir, Charles. When one of Charles's household chamberlain posts became vacant, this became the scene upon which the Croy versus Rollin battle would unfold. Charles decided, probably at Nicholas Rollin's urging to name Rollin's son, Anton, to the position of third chamberlain. The Croy brothers, however, saw this as an opportunity to take some revenge upon Rollin and got into Philip's ear, complaining about Charles, about how he unfairly disliked them, and about how the honour of such a position ought to go to a real noble. Philip quickly commanded Charles to give the position to Jean de Croix's son instead. He would suffer no objection on the matter. A few days later, the Duke demanded that Charles bring his list of household members for him to inspect. When Charles appeared at the palace in Brussels, he found his father in the oratory. He gave Philip the list, which he read carefully, scanning for the name that would indicate his son's obedience. When he realized that the Croy name was not included, Philip was extremely upset. Remember, Philip expected only obedience from his son. Quoting from Arsène Perrier's biography of Nicolas Rollin, the conversation went as such. My lord, said Charles, please forgive me, but I could not do it. The duke replied, How can I? Will you disobey me? Won't you do what I want? My lord, I will obey you, but I will not do this. I would do anything. Philip threw the list into the fire, apparently telling his son, Now look to your ordinances, for you will need new ones. It is unclear what exactly happened next, with accounts varying in extremity and detail, from saying that Philip ranted and raved at Charles, to going so far as to claim that Philip literally drew his sword on his son and chased him around the palace. Whatever the case may be, he was so angered, report both Olivier de la Marche and Chasseline, that the Duchess Isabella and the Dauphin Louis desperately sought to protect Charles and to mediate on his behalf. Apparently there was great fear for her son's life, but also for the well-being of Charles's young wife Isabel, who was heavily pregnant. She quickly hurried them all away from Philip's insurmountable rage. Nobody could calm the Duke in his fury. As night descended, his rage remained implacable, and without making any arrangements with anyone else except to send word to the Decroy brothers to meet him at Huller, he clambered onto a horse and rode out into the fields around Brussels. This was winter, in a swamp. It was cold, misty, and the rain was falling down sidewards. As he rode into the forest of Swan, it seems that his mind may have been in as foggy a temper as was the landscape around him. And that is how we found him at the beginning of this episode, in our little narrative escape into the weirdness of a man who, for five decades, embodied pomp and splendor, being driven to the heights of such fury that he found himself wandering around the cold, wet dark of Belgium and forced to seek refuge in the hut of a meager charcoal burner. So this was a pretty dramatic fracture in the relationship between the Burgundian father and son, the parallel nature of paternal problems between them and the royal French father-son has not been lost on historians ever since, though Charles was not at fear of being imprisoned, as Louis was. Instead, 
heavily chastened, Charles went and sat around in Dendermonde for a while, waiting for Isabella and the Dauphin to calm Philip down. Eventually, the two men reconciled, kind of, with Charles agreeing to sack some of his servants, including Anton Rollin, who Philip believed were, quote, driving forces, end quote, in the disagreement. But the gap between them remained and would remain, Philip becoming aloof of Charles while continuing to lavish the Dauphin with his respect and confidence, as well as the Croix. Isabella of Portugal, after this, also withdrew from the Brussels court and apparently from her husband's affections altogether, although some reports insist that it was he who shunned her, blaming her for his son's disobedience. Delamarche tells us, quote, The Duke complained about his wife, the Duchess, who had abandoned him to follow her son, and I was present when the Marshal expressed to my lady the regret which the Duke felt in this respect to which she replied that she knew my lord, her husband, was a redoubtable knight, and she feared that, in his fury, he might attack her son. It was because of this that she got him out of the oratory and left after him, and she prayed that my lord would forgive her, for she was a stranger in these parts and had no one to support her save her son. End quote. Isabella would spend the remainder of her years living pretty much constantly in a convent, taking more interest in Spanish and Portuguese affairs than those of her adopted lands. Philip, then, had lost one of his most reliable members of court, a woman who had stepped into the mire of low country politics and navigated the swamp with aplomb and loyalty. Especially considering her husband was a renowned womanizer and had over 20 illegitimate other children. She would not be the only long-standing advisor that Philip would lose during these years. Nicholas Rollin also found himself on the outside after this affair. As Chastelaine says, Philip, quote, blamed him for the root of the discord between him and his son, from which so many evils have since arisen. The Duke murmured against him and distrusted him and withdrew his arms over his shoulders, if not in fact of justice, where he suffered him to forgive him his life as Chancellor, but in the handling of his other affairs not as he had done in the past, and especially not for the private matters of his house. End quote. Rowland's enemies took this moment of weakness to go after him, accusing him of all sorts of financial irregularities, many of which would have been true, and corrupt practices, many of which would have also been true. Everybody was doing it. Rowland was hardly unique in doing so. As we saw in the last episode, almost everybody in the Burgundian system was pocketing cash, it was more a case of kicking the bloke while he was down. Roland retained the title of Chancellor, but was no longer the main power broker in the Burgundian administration, losing his position as head of the Duke's council to a man of the Croix's choosing, Guillaume Philast, who would also become the second Chancellor of the Order of the Golden Fleece. And then, in the midst of all this, Charles and his wife, Isabel, became parents in February 1457 to a daughter named Mary of Burgundy. Her birth signifies the beginning of a life, which will be intertwined with that of the history of the Netherlands, as her eventual marriage to Maximilian of Habsburg will see the beginning of a new dynasty in the Low Countries. But we're not there yet. The Dauphin was even named as Mary's godfather, indicating the level to which he was at least on the face of it, 
being adopted into the Burgundian familial sphere, and the extent to which Charles was trying desperately to respect his father's wishes. Nonetheless, the estrangement between the father and son continued, with Charles withdrawing back to Holland, where he concentrated on solidifying the clientele base he had built there, and worrying about what his father would do next. So we will end it here today, with Philip growing old and alone. Even though his influence was arguably more expansive than ever before, having successfully extended his tentacles into Utrecht and Liège, he had now lost his most trusted long-term supporters, his chancellor, his wife, his son, and was now surrounding himself in his home with the son of his biggest rival and a bunch of conniving, opportunistic, power-hungry nobles. The Burgundian dynasty, which he had worked so hard his whole life to build into a glorious rival to the most powerful monarchies on the continent, was developing cracks which would see it shatter and collapse within 20 years. Totsines. But before we leave, of course, we want to thank everybody for listening and interacting with us on all the various platforms. We've had a bit of interest in History of the Netherlands tours for this summer and coming autumn, and so we are working on that as well. We are excited about a few ideas we have and hope to be able to bring more information on that as soon as possible. Don't hesitate to get in touch if this piques your interest or tickles your fancy. Talking about fancy ticklers, it is once again time to light the candles, don our red robes, pull out our preferred choice of bejeweled avian animal, and induct new members to the order of the Golden Patreon Pledge. As benevolent podcasters, we try to love all of our listeners equally, but the members of the Golden Patreon Pledge prove themselves to be the most committed to our cause, and for that, we hereby publicly declare them to be the most honourable and righteous listeners of them all. Without them, we would be nothing but a group of guys reading books and talking about Dutch history together, alone in a room, to the amusement of nobody. Definitely not our girlfriends. As a token of our appreciation to them for emboldening our senses of self-worth, we will now rechristen them with noble knightly monikers. From henceforth, let it be known that Ron Schocker, Volts, is a legend. Gerko Brookstra, Trousers, is a champ. Ken Hochul, Hoags, is a superstar. Asheen, Oysen, Omani, Beeth, one of mighty good crack. Tatiana, Mags, Magdaleno, who wants the world to know about Roman Triectum. Won't people pay attention to Roman Triectum? And for such reasons, Mags is awesome. And finally, Polypat, Patters. You are great and magnificent. Even if those words mean the same thing. If you want to be like Vaults, Trousers, Hoags, Oysen, Mags and Patters, go to patreon.com slash history of the Netherlands. You'll get all of our episodes ad free. A shout out on the podcast and you're 100% guaranteed to be cheered over our WhatsApp group for bringing us one step closer to being able to do this for a living. We'd also like to pass along a massive thank you to those of you who have taken the time to leave reviews of History of the Netherlands on Apple Podcasts. It's been very flattering to see the kind words. Your reviews help keep our show appearing on the History Podcast charts. 
which pleases the almighty algorithm and suggests our show to more people. So a massive thank you to everybody who has done that in the past, right now, and into the future. That's it for this week. Black Lives Matter. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio.